This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode could contain profanity. It's up to me, I guess. Your Saturday could contain a gist newsletter. To sign up for it, our once a week newsletter, go to slate.com slash gist news. It's Tuesday, June 25th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know what I'd like? I'd like for our administration officials to be held to account. I mean, there they are in front of their media apparatus. And we're here in our alternative, I'd like to think more truth-based, fact-checked, responsible media apparatus. This is why it's so important that when a member of the administration exits their echo chamber and treads into this space of reality-based news, it is incumbent to be very clear, very correct, and very consistent with them. Falsehoods need to be aggressively challenged, not, yeah, well, we'll agree to disagree. Two such incidents occurred this weekend. First was when Vice President Mike Pence was on Face the Nation and moderator Margaret Brennan raised an objection to one of his assertions, but I think she could have gone further. Let us play that. I mean, if people come across our border, make a claim of asylum, we can detain them for only 20 days and then they're released into the United States. The truth is 90% of those claims are denied and the vast majority. By who? Convincingly so? Or to just cut to the chase, is Vice President Mike Pence lying or is it that some say he's been lying? The answer is some say he's lying because he's lying. Under the Flores Agreement, the 20-day period, that part is true. But then the question is, do the vast majority never go to their court hearing? No. According to the Justice Department's own statistics, between 60 and 75% of non-detained migrants return to attend immigration court proceedings. When the immigrants have legal representation, by the way, that number shoots up to close to 100. Trump at one point said, quote, like 3% show up to these hearings. Why does it matter? One, lying is bad. Two, If it were true that catch and release is this giant, constantly exploited loophole, it would be a decent rationale for many voters to oppose those policies, to favor the administration's policies. Trump and Pence's solution would have merit to many voters if the numbers were what they say they are. But since the numbers aren't, their policy has little merit. The numbers need to be fact-checked and challenged in the moment. The numbers are the policy. It's not always easy, but when you raise a subject like that and know what the administration has said and how they've lied and mischaracterized before, it's best to come up with something better than, oh, those numbers have been challenged because you know that's going nowhere. A little bit different situation on Meet the Press on Sunday because moderator Chuck Todd heard Donald Trump raise a study or an issue or a fact that just confused the hell out of everyone. You didn't like the fact that you lost the popular vote. That bothered you, didn't it? Well, I think it was a, uh, I mean, I'll say something that, again, is controversial. There were a lot of 
uh, votes cast that I don't believe. I look at California. Mr. President. Excuse me. But that's it. Take a look at Judicial Watch. Take a look at their settlement where California admitted to a million votes. They admitted to a million votes. A million votes to what? Take a look at Judicial Watch. Judicial Watch made a settlement. There, were, there was much. About what? There was much illegal voting. But let me tell you about popular vote. Do you have a second? Yes, because you were you were a big fan two, of it. Well, until I you like popular vote. Yeah. Chuck Todd tried a little bit, but what was going on there in that assertion? I mean, I heard a place. It was L.A. I heard a number. It was a million. I heard an advocacy group, Judicial Watch, and I know the topic was voter fraud. But what was the president saying? You must just stop and say, Mr. President, I don't understand what you're saying. Please make your case. Because you know he'll go mentally galloping on to the next topic. He'll drag you along. It can be a fun, wild ride. But what was just said and asserted? So I looked into it. Here's the claim. Judicial Watch, which is a right-wing judicial watching organization, sued L.A. County, and they entered into an agreement, and the agreement would force the county to purge the voter rolls of old voters. If it's gone two elections and you haven't voted, you will be reached out to, and if you don't respond, they'll take you off the rolls. Because you might be dead, or you might have moved away, or might be no longer interested in voting. Judicial Watch never claimed that this meant there were a million fake votes, just that there were a million, in fact, closer to a million and a half voters or names still on the rolls. They weren't affecting elections. This was the agreement. This is what Judicial Watch won from L.A. The AP reporting on this quoted Paul Mitchell of the nonpartisan research firm Political Data Inc., and he said the case is insignificant because it involves inactive voters who are not casting ballots and not showing up in precincts. Even Jim Brolty, the head of the California Republican Party, said in that AP article, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, Brolty, said, quote, as pattern and practice, neither party communicates with inactive voters. I don't think it has any practical impact on how campaigns will be run in California. So it would have been nice to know exactly what Trump was talking about, and even nicer to confirm, in a word, what we all expected, that it was nonsense. On the show today, I spiel about Pete Buttigieg's day job, mayor, taking time from his other job, trying to become president. But first, Joy Reid is here. The host of AM Joy on MSNBC is out with a new book called The Man Who Sold America. Who is this man? Is it Steve Jobs, Henry Ford, Musk, Ron Popeil? No. Here's the subtitle, Trump and the Unraveling of the American Story. Oh, that man and the joyous Joy Reid. Next. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. You know Joy Ann Reed from her MSNBC show, AM Joy. She's out with a new book now called The Man Who Sold America. Oh, yeah, you know who the man is, but the subtitle says it all. Trump and the Unraveling of the American Story. Joanne, thanks for coming on The Gist. Always great to be here. Thank you. Before we even start, in your bio, 
it does say you live in Brooklyn, New York, and Maryland. Is this two places or three? I'm trying to figure <laughs> out where the commas work. Uh, you know what? It's interesting because <laughs> it's kind of three, right? Because it's like two New Yorks. Yeah. Right? There's the New York that I came back to as a, you know, late teenager that used to be like, you know, you had your rough parts. You mm-hmm. had a lot of character to it. It was like a hip-hop Your mecca. character until you actually got mugged. Until, then it's not being character. Right. It's or you were black during dangerous. the Central Park Five, which right, was like right. terror of the police. Like, it was a weird place to move to because I moved from the suburbs in Denver to yeah. move back here. I was born here. But when I moved back, it was weird because we really experienced for the first time, like, overt racism. Like, white kids who would chase you out of the that part of Canarsie or, like, knowing you couldn't go to Bensonhurst, knowing you would well, get jumped. Yeah. Black people, we felt targeted every day in New York, not only by police, not only by our fellow citizens who were white, but by people like Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, I course. lived through the Central Park Five you know, era as somebody who was around their age. And we were following that every day from their point of view. And watching these kids get railroaded, that could have been my brother, you know, that could have been my friends, my cousins. And so my first experience even of Donald Trump was him taking out that ad. I didn't know anything about him. Mm -hmm. I just knew he was a rich guy who wanted those kids dead. Here's the thing. And this is, I mean, this book is full of scholarship and it goes uh, across the temporal dimension. It's cross-cultural. You talk about the truth and reconciliation in South America and it's all good. But I am constantly brought back to this thesis that politics, presidential politics is somewhat infuriating. It's no one's fault, but it's just one data point. And so that one day, there's a little bit of early voting, but this one day in November, which might not have happened a week before, and it might not have happened a week later, and it probably wouldn't have happened if Anthony Weiner hadn't gone a Texton and a Sexton, right? Um, This one day, we get this one vote and we get this one president. We kind of have to reorder and reconsider what America means did so much change based on the results of that one day? Or are we looking at this one data point and seeing things and giving it a credit bigger than it deserves? I think we're not giving it a credit bigger than it deserves. And and this is the reason why. When President Obama, when Barack Obama got elected president of the United States, it vindicated something that successive presidents, 43 before him, had been saying, and that wasn't always true, right? That we were a country that was in its DNA born of freedom, Mm -hmm. born to produce freedom and born to sell freedom as a concept around the world. The genius of what America was able to do, especially after World War II, when we went in and essentially saved these ancient cultures in Europe, is that we were able to say, no, we really not only did that for ourselves, we can do that for you. We can carry this freedom around the world. That message has been very powerful, and it's actually organized the Western world. The United States inherited the organizational role in the Western world because of that story. But the thing that was so false about it, the thing that was eternally false, was the treatment of black people, anti-blackness, even among other immigrants. And the mistreatment, enslavement, Jim Crow, lynching of black people was just a thorn in the side of that narrative. And then Barack Obama gets elected, and suddenly— The whole world says, oh, my God, they really meant it. They actually can elect somebody from that marginalized community to be their president. Donald Trump comes along and makes that look like a fluke. It makes that look like that was a moment that America kind of hiccuped. And that what Donald Trump is saying is that the reaction to that is exactly the same reaction we had 
to the Civil War. But Donald Trump, the election doesn't prove it was a fluke. First of all, all of that idea is overblown in both directions. We were never solely the shining city on the hill. Correct. And it was never true what Trump promises that essentially we're an insular nation of us versus them. Right. There's a lot of stuff going on. Yep. And so I don't think that the Trump election disproves whatever you want to think that Obama meant. If anything, Obama with his much bigger electoral results, with his winning of the popular vote, with his winning without Russian help, with all that, that should be the one that's the more legitimate data point. And we're just talking about now two data points yeah. as opposed to the Trump data point. You would think, but when I spoke with people around the world, and if you read the book, you know, I've, I've spoken with Iraqi, I've yeah. spoken with South Africans, um, people in England. I actually walked up and down in Gillingham, um, which was a, in Kent, which is Brexit country, and just talked to people in bars and restaurants, just chatted with people. Everywhere that I went and spoke with people, I got the exact same answer. We were always pretty cynical about your story, that what you were selling us sounded good and looked good, and President Obama made it look great. But it wasn't real because this is who you are. Presidents are an avatar. They are the avatar for the country. And the avatar we have right now is breaking apart the uh, Western alliance, is repudiating NATO, is cuddling up to Russia, to Duterte in the Philippines, to uh, the, the dictator in, uh, in, in Turkey, to Kim Jong-un, mm-hmm. the murderous dictator in North Korea, to the Saudis excusing the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. He's, he is he is selling something now around the world that is the antithesis of everything that America has claimed to stand for since World War II. Is the greatest ill he's doing based on his words or his deeds? Both. Donald Trump really can only do what Republicans want to do anyway. Right. They wanted those judges anyway. They would have put Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh up anyway. So would Marco Rubio put them up. So would Jeb Bush have put them up. So would Scott Walker. Same judges would have gone through. Mitch McConnell would have been Mitch McConnell anyway. But what Donald Trump has done is he's freed the Republican Party from having to pretend to be otherwise. The Republican Party's always talked about compassion. George W. Bush and others talking about compassionate conservatism because they had to. Because they still wanted to have a shot at getting some Latino votes. They wanted a shot at whatever African-American votes they could pick up. They wanted a shot at moderate white and and educated white voters. Now they don't need it. Donald Trump has released them. He he has allowed Mitch McConnell to be his worst self because he no longer has to fear that what they're doing is going to not be able to be sellable to the base. That tax cut was not helpful to the base of the Republican Party. Those voters got nothing from it. But when Donald Trump tells them that that was a great tax cut— They'll believe it. I think the best proof of what you're saying about the true soul of the Republican Party, and I do think there are Republicans who are exceptions. Uh, I do think that, you know, Mitt Romney and Jeff Flake are an exception in terms of trying to do outreach to Latinos. Don't know how much it matters, but I do think they're an well, exception. Well, Mitt Romney did say self-deportation. He did. <laughs> so. I wouldn't I wouldn't defend him on that, but I know what he was saying. He's the guy, he's a clunky speaker, and what he was trying to do and say is, if we have a robust regime of enforcing immigration laws, then we won't even have to enforce the laws. People will know that they should leave the country. It's a right. terrible phrase. And of yeah. course, it's going to turn off la- and Latino And he was voters. trying to mollify the same voters who voted for Trump. Of course. And you have to do that if you want to win. But I'm, I go back to the autopsy yep. where the Republican Party said, well, we have to reach out to Latinos. And you could read that as purely cynical. You could read that as doing the right thing. But it almost didn't matter. It was the practical and it seemed logical. And the author of that was Ryan. Priebus. And so yep. 
when given a shot to be in the administration and yeah. be his worst self, he takes it. Yeah. So that tells you about where the Republicans really are in terms of outreach and in terms of, you know, trying to modernize as a party. So one of the things that I did for this book is I, I just read a bunch of research. I was like, let me, because this meme that economic anxiety produced Trump, I never believed in anyway, mm-hmm. but just from going out and talking to a lot of people before the election and what was driving their votes, it wasn't economics. Believe me, it was immigration. It was pretty clear that it was what I call demographic panic, this fear that white Americans were becoming a minority. From the moment that the Census Bureau in about, they started saying it in about 1998, but the time they really, really put out this big report touting the browning of America and the inevitable date when white Americans would become the minority was actually the summer of 2008. Mm -hmm. It was when Barack Obama was a candidate for president, when this idea of a brown wave putting Barack Obama in the White House was already a media thing. And then you have the census saying the browning of America is coming in 2054. They'd been saying it since 1998 when Bill Clinton was in office and was being accused of constantly pandering and petting black people and being nicer to black people and more caring about them than white people. So this meme has been growing. And so the panic that people have about becoming a minority is is born out in the research. And that that fear of of white people's fear of becoming a minority is starting to drive voting behavior in a way that I don't think makes it easy to win people back over. People are genuinely panicking about the idea of non-white migration plus white low birth rates producing a white minority. People are panicking, and Donald Trump took easy advantage of it. Posited, the Republican Party has essentially become a white ethno-nationalist party. But you know what? Most of the country is white and a majority is Christian. So that fact alone should mean, well, then they're going to win every election. I don't think they're going to win every election. And I didn't even think they won the last election. So it seems to me, let's move to the Democrats, that you're saying that if the theory of the case is let's peel off economically anxious white voters in the Rust Belt, bad strategy. But I think there's some evidence that it's a good strategy. Maybe not. Maybe you don't peel them off on the on the question of their economic anxiety. Maybe you peel them off on some other uh, aspect of their identity. But I think that is a way to win the election. No, I'm actually agreeing with you. I'm saying that if, if Democrats actually did go after economically anxious white voters, they'd be better off. Yeah. Because economically anxious white voters are the only persuadable white voters that are not already Democrats. The broker you are as a white voter, the more likely you are to be a Democrat, at least in your ideology, and the more likely you are not to vote. The the biggest pool of voters that are out there that no one is trying to go for are Mm non-voters. They are 40% of the adult population that is eligible to vote during a presidential year. If you're not a voter, it's tough to convert them to a voter. I mean, That's right, because they're economically anxious. (laughs) Obama made great strides, but how great were the strides? We're talking about... So I I don't have the stats off the top of my head, but it is like it went from 40% to 30-something percent, not 20%. Well, yeah, right. Barack Obama, because, number one, he actively registered voters. This Mm -hmm. is something that, other than Jesse Jackson, uh, Democrats have stopped really being in the business of mass voter registration. I mean, Jesse Jackson's two campaigns were massive voter registration campaigns that went across the South, registered black voters. The beneficiary wasn't him. It was Bill Clinton, right? And then since then, Democrats really, I think, in a post-Lyndon Johnson era of the party— that's kind of my last book's topic, have decided they've got to go back and get white. they got to go back and rescue white voters rather than leaning into the fact that they are the ethnically diverse party. Democrats are going to get on tops. So you're going to get about four in 10 white voters that are already in the Democratic camp. But among non-voters, most of those voters, most of those white non-voters 
are gettable for Democrats. They just don't register them. If you think about people like um, Bishop William Barber, when he's going out during the Poor People's Campaign, he's not just among black people. He's in Appalachia. He's out there talking to really poor white people. No one ever comes out and talks to them. And they actually would be naturally Democrats because they want services. Mm -hmm. They believe the federal government should help them. They want education to be public because that's all they can afford. They can't afford to put their kid in private school. If Democrats went into those people, right, who were union guys, who were Democrats already, and said, I'm not going to lie to you and say that the steel plant is going to reopen. Just not going to lie to you about that. But here's what we can do. There is a huge opportunity in this country to repurpose the work skills of people who work with their hands. The green revolution that sounds so like, oh, this is like super like Williamsburg, Brooklyn. No, if we were building super trains, you know how many people would get jobs? Yeah. And we would have decent transportation. Amtrak should not be garbage. Yeah. When you can go to Europe and ride in a beautiful tube, you know, that works and gets there on time. I think every Democrat, if we had all 3,000 Democratic (laughs) candidates here, they would say, but that's what I do say. That's exactly what they do say. They do say, we're not going to lie to you. The jobs aren't coming back, but we have this opportunity. Maybe there are one or two that emphasize other things, but I consistently hear that. Whereas Donald Trump just said... The jobs are coming back. He yeah. lied, and that seemed to work better. It works better because it's simple, and it right, and it makes people feel good. And yeah. people, and pe- if you're mining coal, you probably have black lung, or you're gonna get it. Yeah. But you still oh, also this, this valorization of coal mining right. jobs. It's a terrible like, it's job. Not a horrible thing to do. It's a terrible. By the way, job. working in a factory. Every Springsteen song I listen to, it's about how bad working in a right. factory is. Now we're gonna give you the factory jobs. I'd rather right. make a super cha- train. But if you're making twenty five dollars an hour, I know it's better than a dollar store. That stinks too. And yeah. that's the thing is that people are making 25 bucks an hour. They can afford a home. They can afford a boat. Right. They can afford to go on vacation. So that's what they're thinking about. They're right. not thinking about, oh, I have black lung and I'm working in a job that's going to kill me. Right? right. So Donald Trump saying, I'll give you your job back. That sounds great. And they're like, Democrats aren't saying that. They're just Democrats are too busy talking about, you know, they want to do, you know, reparations and things that I don't want to hear about. I want to hear about that. So if Democrats, I think, were smart, A, they need to go into these communities. Don't be afraid to go into I mean, I've, I'll give Elizabeth Warren a lot of credit for that. She's been to the Mississippi Delta. Mm-hmm. She's going into these towns where the Democrats are not welcome and saying, I've got a plan, which is actually better than what Democrats normally say. They, they, you can't just say, I'll bring your, you know, I'll find you a green new job. You need to be specific and say, this is what I'm going to do. I think if you, if Democrats did that and then actually bothered to register those voters, a lot of times just Democrats don't go to those communities. All right. Last question. And this may happen? Let's say you're asked to moderate or be one of the moderators of of a debate. What is one question, a unique question, if you will, that you'd like to ask all the candidates? Oh, there. Oh, my gosh. That would be so much fun, first of all, to do that. So I would like to, I won't go through all 24 of them because there's like too many of them. Right. What I would love to ask all the women candidates, but specifically the two who are really rising, which is Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren, um, how would you get past the inevitable misogyny and sexism that unfortunately is probably going to also cost you votes among men of color. You're not going to win the same high level of men of any race that Barack Obama did. Mm -hmm. How are you going to win? And how are you going to increase your share of white women voters beyond where Hillary Clinton, who got the most of any Democrat since Lyndon Johnson, highest percentage of white women at 48 percent. How do you get to 49? I'm less interested in their answer because I think I know what they'd say. Well, you got to go out and campaign and convince people. And I believe in uh, the better angels of nature. I'm interested in your answer. How do you think they'll do that? So I genuinely believe that, yes, Joe Biden is the front runner right now, but I feel like 
my theory in general of politics is that the hungriest constituency generally gets what they want, mm-hmm. right? And in the 17 people who were running with Donald Trump, the hungriest constituency were people who were against immigration, people who really fear and dislike the idea of illegal migration, wanted wanted um, their guy, they got their guy. I think with Barack Obama, particularly once he won Iowa, African-Americans finally saw that this could happen, that we could have a black president. They were the hungriest constituency, and they pushed Hillary Clinton aside, took Barack Obama, and took him all the way, right? And I think there's a chance that Biden could suffer the same fate Hillary did in 08. And the most likely two people to be able to take it from him are Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. Um, And so I have this sense that if one of them is the nominee, it will not be a repeat of 2016 because I think women are going to step their game up. I think that you're going to see particularly white women who understand that they were the link in the chain that sort of fell down when it came to putting a woman in the White House. I actually think they have a shot, but they're going to face, I think, what's going to be the dirtiest, nastiest craziest election in our history because you're going to have foreign interference on steroids. And we lived through 2016. I know, but now it won't just be Russia. Now every country in the world is on notice. So maybe Norway is what you're saying. Maybe Norway Norway will finally get in this and we have no idea what they want. (laughs) So it's going to be crazy. Joy Ann Reed is the author of The Man Who Sold America, Trump and the Unraveling of the American Story. We went there and other places. Thank you, Joy. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. And now the spiel. Every presidential campaign intersects with a criminal who doesn't ask and might not even know he's being appropriated to make a point or to stand for an issue. George H.W. Bush had Willie Horton. Bill Clinton took time off the campaign trail to tend to the execution of Ricky Ray Rector. George W. Bush had a slew of convicts whose execution he oversaw in Texas. Donald Trump first announced himself to many Americans when he took out a full-page ad calling for the execution of five boys aged 14 through 16 for a crime they didn't actually commit. And, you know, even Barack Obama is intertwined with a criminal, in this case, a man named Patrick Kennedy, convicted of the rape of an eight-year-old in Louisiana. His death sentence was overturned by the Supreme Court. And in 2008, then-candidate Obama said he disagreed with that decision. South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg has stopped campaigning to tend to the tumult in his city. The interesting wrinkle in this tragedy is, who exactly is the criminal? Because the South Bend police say that Eric Logan was rifling through cars after a string of burglaries was reported, and when confronted by police, namely Sergeant Ryan O'Neill, he wielded a knife, he failed to comply, and then the sergeant, with 19 years' experience on the force, shot him to death. O'Neill hadn't turned on his body cam, and in the past had faced charges of racism, which were dismissed after an investigation. This gave rise to the following situation, as the LA Times put it, perhaps overdramatically, quote, it would be difficult to imagine a domestic crisis more nightmarish for a mayor and a presidential candidate who has enjoyed a largely carefree rise to the top tier of Democratic contestants. So what Pete Buttigieg as mayor did, what he must do, is what every mayor in a similar situation must do, go back to the community and take his lumps. He got yelled at and he needed to get yelled at. He allowed the aggrieved community to vent. But also, he committed to fact-finding and to leading a transparent process that hopefully will lead to greater justice. Now, there are two other former big city mayors in the field So let's look at what they did in similar situations. Unlike Pete Buttigieg, their bona fides on the issues of 
progressive policing in the black community are unquestioned. But also unlike Buttigieg, their actions in the days after police shootings were heavily criticized. First, Bill de Blasio, he came into office as the most critical mayoral candidate the NYPD had ever seen. He joined protests against the NYPD stop and frisk policy. And during his tenure, he's been quite unpopular with the NYPD. Still, when Eric Garner died in a police chokehold on Staten Island, de Blasio was screamed at by protesters. And he was criticized by the deceased man's family members. Here is Erica Garner, Eric's daughter, in an interview from soon after the death. Particularly Bill de Blasio, what is your message to him, but to the city as a whole, the leadership? We need something to change. Bill de Blasio, you haven't been acting like a leader. Um, these cops turned their back on you. These cops is on video killing someone. And instead of just turning your back towards the minority community, you need to turn your backs on a, on a union, the police unions, because, you know, I think that he's scared to go up against them. De Blasio invited the Reverend Al Sharpton to have a prominent role in the aftermath of the Garner killing. Here's how local TV station WCBS played it. Firebrand civil rights activist Al Sharpton, the invited guest at City Hall, taking both the mayor and the police commissioner to the woodshed over police tactics following the death of Eric Garner after police put him in a chokehold. I also think, Commissioner, that the best way to make police stop using illegal chokeholds is to perk walk one of them that did. Sharpton telling the mayor and the commissioner in no uncertain terms that their idea of retraining cops doesn't hold much water with him. You don't need training if a man's saying 11 times, I can't breathe. The spectacle's so unsettling that some are questioning de Blasio's leadership. The point is, you could scarcely be more on the side of the protesters against police violence than Bill de Blasio is and was, and there's still a lot of flack to take, a lot of emotional community members to hear out patiently. Let's next move to Cory Booker, also the mayor of a large city, not large by NYC standards, but Newark is almost three times the size of South Bend. It's also much, much more murderous. Newark, during Booker's tenure, averaged just under 100 murders a year. In South Bend, it's about 15. Now, in those years, Newark's police force was deluged with complaints. And the ACLU actually petitioned the U.S. Department of Justice to take oversight of the Newark PD. Some of the stats are shocking. Between 2008 and 2010, which is just a fraction of Booker's seven and a half year tenure, but it's all during his tenure, there was only one complaint against the police upheld out of 261 complaints filed. At the time, Cory Booker chafed at the ACLU's involvement, holding his department to account. He told WNYC Radio this about Deborah Jacobs, who was the head of the state ACLU. And at a time that we're under severe budget cuts, losing too many police officers. Uh, this is a ridiculous way that if, if uh, Deborah Jacobs and her team really want to help, uh, this is probably one of the worst ways. And there's a fallacy. Booker, now, these days, when he reflects on that time, he says he was frustrated. He also frames the ACLU's involvement as helpful. I read that ACLU complaint. It's hard to know how many people the police actually shot in Newark. That's how shoddy records are. And that's also a fault of the federal government. But that complaint detailed that Newark paid out 38 settlements and had been sued 51 times over false arrests, discrimination, or death in police custody. There were 400 claims of police misconduct during the two and a half years the ACLU studied, all during Booker's tenure. 
My point is not, see, Cory Booker did it too. It's this, all mayors of cities face these problems. And if the media is to descend and judge that moment as definitive and disqualifying, because there are a lot of angry community members in the room, then the media is not doing a service to viewers or to voters or to the process of covering and adjudicating who would be a good leader. Let's just take one interaction. Here is Pete Buttigieg being yelled at by a protester. CNN played this. I do not have evidence that there has been discipline for racist behavior in the case of And there at the end, you heard Buttigieg saying to the protester, who claimed she wasn't going to vote for him, nor would others, saying, I'm not asking for your vote. He then went on to say, I will promise that there will be a review to make sure there is no racism in this department and that it will be independent. Okay, here's how Meet the Press covered that statement. Bad week to have a bad week. Yeah, well, be- yeah. Beyond, the, beyond the record, there's also just a thin-skinnedness about his response that I think mm. will not wear well on the campaign trail. And he had never shown that before. Right. You yes. know, yes. It, right. it is like there's this one moment that's when you read it, it looks terrible. He didn't mean it the way it came across. I don't want your vote. I don't want your vote. He was yeah, just yeah, simply yeah, saying, yeah. I'm not playing politics now. Right. But it came across. It's just a horrible exchange for him. How ridiculous. Chuck Todd and the panel engaging in theater review. It looked bad with an aside of, yeah, but if you knew the context, it wasn't so bad. But then again, too, whoo boy, but without the context, what a doozy. Well, how about providing the context, which is something the media largely didn't do? They were just ensorcelled by the conflict. Here is some context necessary. Right now, the South Bend Police Department is 13 black police officers. Four years ago or five years ago, they had 26 black police officers. So that means the police force is 5% black. The city's about 25% black. The shooting may yet be deemed justified. And by the way, that designation may yet be rejected by the community. That's all true. Buttigieg, by attending to his city, is doing his job. And it's unclear what he's doing wrong right now in the moment, though it's certainly being portrayed as something wrong through the prism of a presidential campaign with rollouts and good weeks and bad weeks. We want a presidential process to choose leaders, but when leadership is messy, the media acts appalled, gleeful, but a little appalled. On a factual basis, we can report that South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg has said he will ask for a Justice Department review and an independent prosecutor to decide whether to bring charges against the officer. He will also be appearing on stage at the presidential debate on Thursday. That's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They point to that judicial watch study that shows that the Lakers would have won uh, and gotten about a thousand more points if uh, something, something judicial watch. And yeah, moving on. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts. If she had one question to ask the candidates, it would be, okay, everyone who's not Seth Moulton, point to the one who is Seth Moulton. 
What Next is a Slate podcast that appears every day just like this one, but different from this one. For one thing, it's on in the mornings. And this morning, they talked about St. John the Baptist, Louisiana. Residents there thought if good luck were a hurricane, it wouldn't muss their hair. But it turns out it has nothing to do with luck. It has to do with air pollution. St. John the Baptist, Louisiana, faces the most air pollution of any town in Louisiana. And this is a fact that they've been living with for years, but just found out about recently. That's on What Next? And this is the gist. While the glorification of coal mining jobs goes on, I predict in the future, the glorification of data mining jobs will be the misplaced romanticism of the time. Oopro Peru, and thanks for listening.